With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. Tim Ferriss, I'm so happy to have you back on the show. This is your second visit to the James Altucher Show. Welcome. Thank you, sir. So, Tim, the, the first thing I want to talk about, and there's, there's actually a lot of topics I want to talk to you about. So many things have been happening in your life. But the first thing is you're, you're, you bought the rights back to your TV show, The Tim Ferriss Experiment. And I was really disappointed uh, initially when I heard that it was canceled. I was kind of going through them and I didn't have a chance to watch all of them. So now am I going to have a chance to watch all of them? You you will have a chance, and uh, we can definitely dig into the backstory. The entire division at Turner uh, Broadcasting was shut down, so not just my show, uh, every show that they had made, whether it was doing well or not, as well as every piece of online content, webisodes, everything. You know, the dozens of people involved all had their content just put in the vault. So you the at the time that you were probably checking them out, I think only the first two maybe were up on yeah. iTunes. I only saw the um, you you Stuart Copeland, the, you know one of the best drummers right. in the world, was teaching you how to drum so that you could drum in a live concert with Foreigner. That's yeah, that's right. And they were so, kind of picking on you. They were oh, yeah, Foreigner yeah. was kind of like saying you're you're gonna totally screw up, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were good at applying some pressure, which uh, you know, it's sometimes you need uh, the kind of the stern father to to shake his hand at you. So I I I, uh, I, I responded pretty well to that. But the the show is going to uh, have well, I am launching, and by the time people hear this, uh, they they should be able to see it, which is uh, all thirteen episodes at once. I'm launching it House of Cards style, so I want people to be able to binge watch this whenever they want. I'm putting out everything at once, and. Uh, it's it's been a long journey to get here, so I'm very very excited about it. And it's uh, it took a long time just to make the show in the first place, which was you know a year year and a half ago with the people I wanted to work with. Uh, it took time to find an agreement where I would be able to select uh, a group as talented as Zero Point Zero. They do all of, all of Anthony Bourdain's work, uh, which is really cinematic and gritty, and um, they have a reputation for just putting out kind of a film quality. Verite as opposed to so nonfiction television as opposed to reality, so-called reality TV. And, and Tim, you know, I, I spent some time uh, working on documentaries. I used to work. Uh, sorry about the train. I used, okay. to, I used to work at HBO uh, doing some documentary stuff. And I can see this was not these episodes were not four hour work weeks. <laughs> like no way. No you way. must have done. It looked it honestly looked to me about. I don't know, 50 or 60 hours or more of filming and then another 20 hours of editing for each episode. That That's what it seemed to me. Oh, at least. Yeah. I mean, at least you, you nailed it. So I would say you know, two things. If you want a four hour work week, don't work in television, at least not in the traditional sense. Um, second thing is you know, the, the purpose of the four hour work week is obviously to, to be able to allocate time to what you want to allocate it to. And this was something I was 
it was the most exciting thing in my life at the, at the time that we we're putting it together. So I was happy to put in crazy time, but it ended up, we did, if you can believe this, James, you've done some production work before. So you'll appreciate this. Uh, 13 weeks worth of shows. So 13 weeks straight. And we're filming Monday to Friday. Then we fly out Saturday, have meetings on Sunday to prep for Monday. And then we're off to the races filming a new episode on Monday, pretty much every time we filmed probably, or my days were like 12 to 16 hours a day, every day for that 13 week period. Yeah. Because you're not just being filmed and I'm sorry to to interrupt, but you're, I just want to remind people this show was you about you, uh, kind of learning these incredible feats from scratch. So it's not just you being filmed. It's also you spending the time to learn. Yes. So it's hard. Well, it's not only me spending the time to learn, but also I was a co-executive producer. So I was reviewing all the rough cuts. I was reviewing the the fine cuts, sending back production notes uh, in the production meetings to figure out what type of, of scenes or camera positioning we might use. I mean, obviously, I had very, very experienced people helping with the technical stuff. Uh, but it was a very collaborative, very intense process. And, and the goal, of course, being not to, not to make it the look how cool Tim is show, but to showcase the, the trials and tribulations, the failures, the challenges, but also the occasional miracles that you can engineer with a better toolkit and just a, a handful of accelerated learning techniques that other people can use. So that's, that's kind of the idea. I guess it's, it's like Mythbusters meets Jackass uh, in a way. I, I, I don't know. Also meets four hour meets four hour chef. Cause I, oh, yeah. I, I yeah, feel like definitely. the, I feel like the four hour chef and the four hour body captured uh, a lot of the essence of what you were then trying to move into, into TV with. Oh, absolutely. And the, the fact of the matter is I love text, but I find the process of writing books very isolating and brutal and uh, we're we're in a world where I still believe in the power of text. I don't believe it's dying, but not everyone is going to sit down and curl up with a 600 page book. Uh, and again, so the you know podcasting is obviously amazing because people can say yes to podcasting without saying no to other things. They can do it while they're jogging or cooking or commuting. But I wanted to try to tackle the visual medium because I had a, a lot of fun experimenting with video in the past. I always wanted to be a comic book penciler and I was an illustrator for a couple of years in college actually. Uh, so I fantasized about doing that and, and the video gave me an opportunity to, to kind of shake out my wrist and storyboard things and try to put together uh, a story arc based on whatever content I might shoot or already had. So it was, it was a hell of a, the whole TV show was an experiment. <laughs> yeah. Because you know, people don't realize like in, with, with documentary style editing, um, you know, there's obviously all the video, but what makes it really difficult is the editing is where the story actually comes out. And that's where that you form the arc of the story. And it's incredibly difficult to edit a documentary. It's extremely difficult. And it's, it's particularly difficult. I mean, in our case, you pretty much nailed it on the head. I think we had, you know, 50 to 60 hours of footage. Uh, now, when I say 50 to 60 hours, I should probably double or triple that because we had multiple cameras, right? Right. <laughs> and uh, then you have to chop that down to 22 minutes or so, 21 to 22 minutes. It's an incredibly difficult task. And the uh, the way I wanted to do it was very nonfiction. What I, mean, what I mean by that is I didn't want to record a bunch of footage and then chop it up and move things around chronologically and put things out of order and basically create a story that didn't exist in real life. I didn't want to do that. So what that meant was 
we had to plan really meticulously in advance. Like let's do these following activities film spontaneously over the next several days. And hopefully that will form a story arc. And if this, then that, if this, then that, if Tim breaks a leg, we do this. If Tim blows a rotator cuff, like I did, we do this. <laughs> you know, if Tim hits a home run, then we do this and having these contingencies set up so that the process was even feasible. Uh, but man, I got to tell you, kudos to everybody who works in, uh, in film and TV. This stuff is really hard to do. Well, it's really, really tough. I'm, I'm super proud of how it came out, but man, it well, is, well, well, that leads, that leads to the next thing. So you're, you're super proud how it came out. You did 13 episodes. Um, just judging from the descriptions of all the episodes, it looks like you had an incredible experience and then they kind of cut your neck off. And like that day when you heard, okay, they're going to cancel this. Uh, and, and obviously now it's coming out today. I'm releasing this podcast the day it all comes out. Um, but the day you heard they were canceling this, what was going through your head? Oh, a lot of things were going through my head. Um, and what, what made it particularly tough is we were getting a lot of these murmurs of things happening uh, while we were still filming or in at least post-production. So we were still working on a lot of this stuff. And um, it, was, uh, it was very difficult, obviously. I think that uh, you know, linear television is very challenged and networks have a huge challenge on their hands in terms of introducing new programming. So the show itself was put on uh, HLN. And HLN is headline news. I mean, it is courtroom uh, reenactments and drama and news. I remember the Zimmerman case was the big news at the time. And I, I didn't feel like it was a, a match uh, demographically at all. Uh, and it, it, I was actually surprised that it was put on at all. I mean, if, if that were the only choice available, I was, I was actually surprised and pretty happy. They were like, all right, look, like this is the option we have to, to put it on, but it made it very difficult for anyone in my audience to watch it. I mean, because many of them don't have cable. A lot of them don't have HLN. And whenever you have appointment viewing, it's just not how my audience tends to do things. Um, so the, it hurt, it hurt a lot. And I think that the, the only reason I have fought for the last year and a half is because I'm like, you know what? I don't think this got a fair trial. I, I really feel like people need to see it in sort of its native environment in which I wanted, I kind of envisioned it being digitally released house of cards style in my ideal world. Uh, but yeah, that was a brutal day, man. I why mean, why didn't they, why didn't they just do that? Why didn't they just say, okay, Tim, we're not going to put it on HLN who gives a shit anyway, because no one watches that channel. We're going to put it on iTunes though. We're going to release it everywhere. We're going to publicize it on CNN. Um, you'll publicize it on your list. They could have made like a good amount of money doing that. I, it's a great question. And it's, I've, I've found that it's, it's difficult. Not all of the reasons for all the decisions were transparent to me and understandably so. I mean, Turner Broadcasting as a massive company does not have an obligation to share all the details with me, but the, at the end of the day, uh, the entire division was shut down. So they, all of the content was, was pushed into a vault and this is very – when there is a regime change like that, the people who are tasked with managing those assets or the people who inherit them are don't really have any incentives to do a lot with them. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, this happens in music a lot as well. 
uh, or TV shows when they are going to be renewed or canceled, uh, you'll have a regime change. A new exec will come in and the exec will pretty accurately look at the situation and say, if I, if I do something with this and it fails, I'm going to get all of the blame. And if I do something with this, with this and it does well, I'm not going to get any of the credit. So I'm just going to put it in limbo. I'm going to put it in the vault until maybe a, a clearer decision can be made. But it's almost and, like there's no way to fail. If you just release it digitally um, to iTunes, it's just free money for them. I Hey, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. And uh, what, I, what I realized after it all is, you know, number one, I'm not the easiest person to work with because I'm highly, highly uh, a perfectionist and – I'm the guy who will take a blog post that probably is not that important in the grand scheme of things from a prosaic standpoint. It's like uh, an announcement and I'll do 17 revisions until I am happy with how it looks. So uh, when you take that level of OCD and impose it onto a group or people in a large company who are managing dozens of different properties, not just the Tim Ferriss experiment, it tends to drive people crazy. So on some level, uh, I've realized if I were to do this again or to do more video content, I would want to go to Kickstarter or a similar platform, raise all the financing myself and really run the show. I would want to hire everyone and and do it myself uh, because there's so many amazing freelancers out there. I mean, in this world where suddenly people are defecting from places like NPR to help people like you or me with podcast engineering and, and, uh, and, and production or uh, even in TV and film, you see a lot of this. I mean, a lot of the best people are available as freelancers. And the what I'm hoping this will do with me uh, buying back the the you know the license to do digital distribution for this is that it will show artists out there, whether they're let's say writers whose books are out of print but they can't do anything with them because the publisher owns the rights, or they are albums, you know, literally starving musicians who have albums that are just sitting on a shelf, not being sold, but they can't get the rights back, are going to realize that there are options. Like You can rescue orphaned content. And I'm hoping this will just produce a huge wave of these gems being brought back to life and resurrected. Because If you think about it, it could be almost like an alternative investment strategy, like a hedge fund strategy. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to buy the rights to, let's say, 50 forgotten shows, 10,000 forgotten songs, you know, like B-side songs. Um, maybe all these books from like the seventies or eighties that are totally out of print and just start releasing them and get like an income stream from all of them. I could probably buy a lot of these things for pennies on the dollar. Yeah. I, I think that could be a very interesting strategy. You would need, you would need people on staff to manage a lot of paperwork. If you are getting the rights from larger organizations, because the larger organizations are typically not highly incentivized to, to, cooperate. But for instance, with the, the book club, I have a book club, you know, the Tim Ferriss book club. And uh, I try to resurrect these titles that I think didn't get the, the attention they deserved. And I produce audiobooks. And uh, the, what I've found is it's generally not worth my time to try to negotiate with the, you know, the Simon and Schuster's and the random houses of the world, because there are too many levels, too many approvals, too many restrictions. It just eats up a ton of time. However, when you go to some of the smaller publishers, or agents or authors who own their own rights, it's a totally different ballgame. Then you can do some really fascinating stuff. So I could see someone going out to creators who are doing really well on, say, a Vimeo or somewhere else and saying, hey, what else do you have that people haven't seen? Or what else 
do you have that I could help you distribute because I have an audience like like you or me? Uh, that could be very, very interesting. Uh, well, so. and, and you're seeing that happening in publishing a little bit with, um, you know, publishers are almost using uh, Amazon self-publishing as like the minor leagues. So Fifty Shades of Grey was originally self-published, uh, Wool, The Martian, then, you know, they got they all became bestsellers self-published and then Simon and Schuster and Random House would go and scoop them up. Movies would get made and so on. Oh, definitely. That's why, you know, I'd be, I'd be astonished, but I would, you know, I'd be astonished, but I wouldn't be surprised if this makes any sense. If studios or people in film weren't already doing this, but if I were in their shoes, I would be scouring Kickstarter to see what campaigns are doing best and saying, Hey, I know you guys are going to do A, B, and C on your own, but if you want additional distribution or syndication through these following platforms, we'd love to have a conversation with you, right? I mean, that gets very interesting. So so I want to just quickly run down some of the different episodes you've done, but then I want to learn a little bit more. Um, I, I, we're, we'll, we're going to get to these episodes, but I also want a little more about how you actually uh, bought back these rights. But so you did, you, you did the one that I saw, which was rock and roll drumming. Um, where you actually played live? How big was the was the audience when you played live with Foreigner? It was a couple of thousand people. I mean, it was big enough to scare the living hell out of me. <laughs> I would be scared. I would. Yeah. Be, I, I I can't even do like a TED talk without crapping in my pants. So I can't. <laughs> I can't imagine. You did uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Now I know you're like an athlete in a lot of ways, but was this totally from scratch? It, it, no, I had done some Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu a long time ago, many years ago. Uh, but this was at a gym in New York City with Marcelo Garcia, who's a six-time world champion. And the guys I worked with and sparred with and also got taught by are the top of the top world-class competitors. In fact, a guy named John uh, – I think it's Satava. Uh, might be Satava, but I think it's Satava. Anyway, John, J-O-N, uh, just – he beat one of the Gracies, choked him out with a north-south choke in, the, I think, in the black belt division to head to the world championship. So these guys are just beasts, great guys, but beasts. So that was uh, what made that episode really cool. I don't know, James, if you've ever met uh, Josh Waitskin. He's uh, you know, I, I I met him on a street corner in 1994. Uh, very briefly. Wow, that's a hell of a memory. <laughs> yes, I, re- I remember we 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 were with a, a mutual friend and we just talked for like a second. Yeah, so Josh is a very close friend. He was the uh, the kid or the inspiration for Searching for Bobby Fischer, right. both the book and the movie. He's a chess, considered a chess prodigy. So he uh, helped me learn jujitsu through the lens of chess principles, which was so cool because Josh is also the first black belt, if my memory serves me right, under Marcelo Garcia. So that was that was a really – that's one of my favorite episodes because we use both the jujitsu and the chess and the parallels between the two. Well, you know, I could see how the chess could be related. Actually, I could see how chess could be the, the kind of the science of learning chess is kind of is related to all of these episodes. And I want to get to that. But 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 I just want to describe some of these other things. So then you did one uh, called The Dating Game where you where Neil Strauss basically helped helped you with your with your game. Yeah. Neil Strauss, author of the game. Exactly. Uh we had Neil who forced me to do cold approaches, which was hugely embarrassing and hilarious. Uh, well, what, a- does that, what does that mean? It means, it means you just walked up to a girl and started talking to her? Yeah, that's it. That's walking up to strangers and trying to get their phone number. Uh, we had to do that at the Ferry Building in SF on a – I think it was a Saturday. So if you want to talk about a crowded environment, that's it. Uh, but we also had a, a computer hacker 
uh, helping me optimize online dating. And then we met with a matchmaker as well to see how all three approaches would compare. Actually, okay, so so, so I want to actually focus on that for just a quick second. So A, uh, when you just cold approached, did you have to kind of build up, did, did you, how quickly did your courage um, uh, sort of reveal itself? Like were, I, I would have been scared at first, but then I imagine after a few, you get used to it. <laughs> I wish I could say that after three, I was you know, smooth as silk, but I was nervous. It probably took me 10. I, you know what? Let me rephrase that. I was nervous every time I did it. Even if I had a semi-successful approach or got a number, if I had to do it again, it was right back to the primal reptile brain fear. I have never been the kind of guy to do that. Like if I'm, if I'm seated next to an attractive lady at a dinner or something like that, I can hold my own because there's a context. But for me to walk up and kind of Jedi mind trek them into talking to me when they're on their way to someplace else is not a natural skill for me. So, uh, what, what were some of the techniques that, that Neil said you can use for a cold approach? Well, there are a couple of techniques, but the simplest would just be asking a question of some type. So it's like, hey, sorry, you know, well, actually, he wouldn't want me to say sorry. That was a bad habit that I have. But he would, you could ask, say, a woman for, I need a female opinion on X, right? Should I buy this type of sweater or this type of sweater for a friend or whatever it might be? And uh, you're giving them a question, for instance, that is not going to be the frequently asked question that they get every time some Yahoo walks up to them at, say, a bar, right? Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, Sammy, the the hacker who's amazing, very good friend of mine who's, who's – uh, just a hell of a guy and a really very much a, a genius when it comes to any type of uh, social engineering or computer hacking. He uh, set up a female dating profile for himself so that he could see what the the headlines were in the messages that got sent via the you know inbox, like the messaging capability, and that and that, and he was able to identify like the, the two or three things that came up repeatedly. Um, and then not say those things. Uh, and uh, so, so there are ways to kind of optimize the system. A very interesting one is to split test your uh, – actually, yeah, you are split testing your profile picks. And you can use OkCupid even if uh, – I think you can use it even if you don't use the service. There's a, there's a feature called My Best Face and it, it allows people in the community to vote, basically vote you up or down, hot or not style – or Tinder style on your photos. And it will tell you after 24 hours or 48 hours or whatever, uh, exactly which photos you should use for your profile. And I was, I was, I was really surprised at what did well. The photos that I thought would kill it tanked and the ones that I couldn't care less about <laughs> did really well. So it just goes to show how, uh, my intuition does not serve me very well. But, with these but you know what? That, that's interesting because the same thing happens in almost every area of life. So like, take investing in startups. Almost nobody knows in advance what's going to make a successful startup else everyone would just invest in the next Uber. Right. So, you know, people people have a very inflated sense of what they can predict. And uh, that's an example of it. Oh, 100% agreed. I mean, and there, there are a lot of great books that expand on that. I mean, Predictably Irrational, Stumbling on, happy, on Happiness, we are terrible at predicting what'll work. So, 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 so in the cold approaches, though, 
what what did you find by the end of the week? What did work for you? Um, other, other than kind of asking these, you know, uh, this sweater or this sweater questions, like, was there any were there any body language techniques? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if, if you can just stand laterally, so you're not not like pressing them up, up against a farmer's market stall or anything like that or, or invading personal space. So body angling, I think, is very important. Uh, general demeanor, if you come off as really super, super anxious, that obviously does not help matters. Uh, so I think that one of the most helpful rules that Neil forced me to follow, although I wasn't perfect in the beginning, certainly, was the three-second rule. And that is don't over-deliberate approaching, just make the approach, just rack up mileage basically. So I do think it is almost more than anything else a matter of uh, inoculating yourself against fear by experiencing low level of fear over and over and over again. So I do think like many things, it, this is a matter of, of, of repetition, but I don't think it, it doesn't take all too many. I mean, I think if you were to do it for an hour, uh, you could very quickly be at ease with being ill at ease. Maybe, maybe you could, but you know, look at me, I, I'd have, I would take at least a year or two. I think you'd be better. I, you know, James, I'm going to challenge you there. I think you would be better than I was. I think that you I hope you take this the right way. I think you care less about what people think of you than I do. I, and, I, and I try very hard not to be affected by – Like what was the what, worst rejection you got? They weren't that bad. That's the thing. You just get people who are like really uncomfortable and anxious. They're like, sorry, sorry. I'm busy. I'm on my way somewhere. And then they, they split and they just – they don't talk to you at all. <laughs> there was no – you know, no one threw – ice cream in my face or well, what about though when you take it to the ne- what about when you took it to the next step though and said okay you like this sweater or can i have your phone number <laughs> well there are some steps in between uh that i managed to flub on a couple of different occasions uh when i got to the phone number point uh and i only asked a few people because i was a coward but uh they gave me their number because i'd created some type of context or established some type of common interest Blah blah blah, you know. So they uh, they were actually less terrifying than I expected they would be, and which is of course silly. But it, you have to keep in mind all of my all of my horrific failures from you know junior high and high school came back to haunt me when I tried to revisit this because I have I have tried very lo- very hard to design a life where I don't have to do cold approaches. It's that that's how much I dislike doing cold approaches so of, of course that's so, exactly what neil wanted me to do it's sort of like step number one write a best-selling book and then go to lots of parties about the book that, <laughs> that's the best technique of all well i mean you could do that you i mean you might end up dating people with questionable motives if, if that's your that's true. <laughs> you know if i took a, a copy of my book and like threaded it around my neck and, and then people would ask me i'll be like oh oh this thing yeah let me tell you about this but uh uh, yeah, dinner, dinner's my game, cold approaches, you know, I, I could use some work, but I think it's, uh, I think it's, <laughs> I like, I like people to see the failures because, uh, it, it's, it's one of those cases where whatever I managed to do right is, is due to a toolkit that I've tried very hard to refine over time. It's not because I knock it out of the park at all of my at bats, you know, I screw up. I screw up more than most people I know. It's just that when you see the highlight reel in a bio or the book that's the end product, you don't see everything that goes into it and all of the face palming and sort of stumbling that went on in the process. 
Okay, so so the the twelfth episode I was curious about because I I played quite a bit of uh, of poker in my life, and uh, you did you start from scratch in your knowledge of poker? And uh, I, I did. Yeah, I I had never played a hand of poker. I had, I had literally wow. ne- never played at all. So Phil Gordon is obviously a great player, and he he was helping you. Yeah, Phil's made uh, I think I don't know three or four million in in purse, and uh, he is a former computer science guy, so he was just the perfect person to sit down with me and could really walk me through the fundamentals, but but also sequence things in the right fashion and understanding that the challenge at the end of the week was to play heads up, you know, one-on-one against a couple of professionals for thousands of dollars of my own money. Uh, I think it was 1500 total or 3000, something like that, uh, which is real cash. Uh, and you, and as, as you know, probably uh, you behave very differently and your psychological state is very different when you're playing with your real money versus play money or no money. It's well, it's, it's, well and, and also heads up versus a full table statistics becomes much less important and your actual reading of the body language and everything becomes much more important. And that's incredibly more difficult. It's super hard. Uh, all of the factors are hard. So poker was one of those that really, it was one of the many skills, this was not the only one, that addressed a phobia of math of mine that I've had since I had since ninth grade. I had a, I had a very ball-busting teacher in uh, ninth grade math who, for whatever reason, a female teacher, a very good teacher, but she had an axe to grind with all the male students in the class. And uh, almost all of them opted out of math after that that I'm aware of, including me. So part of the reason I went to Princeton undergrad was because, and I don't talk about this much, but... Uh, Princeton didn't have a math requirement. <laughs> you know, I would think you know you're you're an analytical kind of guy. I would think like math would be sort of natural for you. It's not. It's not. And uh, I I I I I enjoy using math in the context of uh, certain types of split testing and analytics and just uh, self tracking with blood tests and so on. But that's usually writing down numbers and doing basic arithmetic. Uh, the probabilistic thinking and mental calculation required of poker, because I, I did do some some table play as well. It wasn't all heads up, but uh, that was very counter to my own programming because I, I, I've tried so hard to avoid it for for so long. But uh, poker is fascinating to me because it's not just dependent, obviously, on the math. Uh, it's dependent on many different factors including patients and different people have different styles of play, but the statistically the amount that you or the percentage of hands that you fold is just mind blowing. Right. And people get bored and then they start betting and then they make bad decisions and they lose a lot of money. Uh, oftentimes, not always, but, uh, that self-control was interesting to me because I don't have, what I don't have any trouble doing is being bored for a long period of time. If I have a system that requires that, I'm okay with that. So right, that's so, actually so, so math can give you that at the table, but when you're but when you're heads up, you can't you can't do that at all. It's the reverse strategy. Well, no, you can. I mean, uh, when I don't want to give away too much, but I folded a lot in heads up, and there I was running a lot of math in my head. Uh, I mean, I'm sure not nearly as much if you're doing a high stakes game with. You know, eight people at a table, but I was uh, running a lot of math because the blinds, and I don't want to, you know, this might be inside baseball for people who've never played poker, but the, the blinds, which are basically the the required bets, right, that you must right. put out on the table so that there's something to play for, 
those were going up every, I think, 10 minutes or five minutes. Uh, so the, 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 the decisions I made had to change accordingly. Um, and again, this is, this is speaking from the standpoint of a novice, but they're pretty interesting results. I got to say it was a, it was a very fascinating experience. Uh, I loved Phil's style of coaching. Um, the being in Vegas for two weeks straight because I did another episode in Vegas was a little much for me on the strip, being on the strip for two weeks. <laughs> I felt like I had to go sort of take a, a de-lousing bath every night and then, uh, go find where I'd lost my soul at the end of, of that period of time on yeah. the strip. Yeah. Las Vegas is like this alternate reality. It's hard to, uh, it's hard to get used to it. I think. So it is, it you know, is. The 13th episode looks fascinating and particularly the way it's the way it's shot in the trailer. You're like a superhero practically. So it's urban evasion and escape. So I guess the idea is what happens if you're kind of kidnapped and handcuffed and a bag is put over your head and you're uh, far away from anybody who can hear you scream and you are supposed to get out of that situation. And obviously you had never done that before. No, I hadn't done that before. <laughs> and the the context for that is uh, is really the fact that at, at one point, it, you know, people at Turner very kindly asked me, and this is something no TV people ever, had ever asked me before, which was, if you could do anything in TV, what would you want to do? Usually, I'd, I'd had people involved in TV come to me and say, hey, here's what we're doing. We're looking for a host or we're looking for a judge. Do you want to do it? And there was zero creative input from me. So the answer, one of my answers to the folks when they asked me that was, I'd like to create a show about becoming Jason Bourne and how people can become Jason Bourne. Uh, and there are definitely some James Bond elements in there. But if you look at the show and all the episodes, you have <laughs> language learning, rally car racing, you know, escape sequences and stuff. Well, you, you, have, have, the, you have the art of parkour, which is, I don't, I don't know if I said it right, but that's like where you're kind of jumping around from wall to wall like Jason Bourne. Yeah, exactly. Or the initial chase scene in Casino Royale, you know, basically ninja plus breakdancer over obstacles, which is uh, that was that was a really painful episode. The escape and evasion was sort of the final piece in the puzzle. I was like, okay, well, let's really figure out. And I wanted to learn this stuff, quite frankly, because I travel to a lot of places where there are kidnapping risks also. And I'm I'm doing less of that. But I've, I've historically spent a lot of time in South America and in Central America, and those are real risks. I mean, those are industries in many of those countries. In many of those countries, and uh, you know, you'll have organized crime with with relationships uh, at the airport who will read flight manifests to determine who makes promising targets, and they'll use Google and other tools to establish that. So, I wanted to learn for very practical purposes. You know, what what happens if if I am kidnapped, or if I am hooded, or if I have zip ties tied around my wrists, my ankles, how, how could I conceivably get out of such a situation or just as important, prevent it in the first place? Um, so that was, or for instance, uh, you know, hot wiring a car, uh, that was very fun. Uh, <laughs> no, no, wait, just, just the, the kind of, um, being kidnapped, handcuffed, hooded, everything. Is it possible to escape that? Uh, it is with, with, uh, some basic, preparation. And, uh, in many cases, you don't even need a lot of tools. You could just use your body. And in fact, I mean, for instance, if you have someone wrap like seven layers of duct tape around your wrists and your arms, which is very common in say hostage situations, that's very easy to get out of with no tools. Uh, astonishingly enough. Uh, so it is possible. What's the uh, trick? 
I, I, I don't want to give away the show, but I, I, I personally want to know the trick. Okay, the trick is, and there are a lot of physics involved. I give you the basics, but what you have to do is sort of form fists with your hands, apply pressure outward with your wrists, and then slam the space in between your elbows into your own ribs. Uh, and clearly, you can do some damage to yourself. Um, you could even break ribs. But if your choice is that or getting out, then that is that is one way to do it. And uh, well, I was able to do that on. Uh, the first try, I'm pretty sure. The duct tape was surprisingly easy to get out of. The others are more challenging, uh, especially the handcuffs. And if the handcuffs are behind the back, it's even harder. Um, the And we used official issue, I think, it's Smith & Wesson police handcuffs. Uh, but th- I'll put it this way. I don't think that it's possible necessarily to mitigate for all disaster scenarios. But it's cheap, ins- it's, it's cheap insurance and smart insurance, in my opinion. And it's also fun to have a basic repertoire of techniques that could address a handful of common situations. So, so throughout all of these and, and okay, so there's, there's tactical shooting there's starting a business, there's open water swimming, there's surfing, there's golf. Oh, okay. Let's talk about golf for a second. Nobody can possibly teach me to go from 140 golf to like 100 golf. Like what happened? Like what happened in that show? <laughs> that show, we used a lot of uh, motion capture to do very uh, biomechanics oriented analysis to see, for instance, which parts of my body were moving in what plane at what speed and what order, which is very important. If you're looking at say the, the kinetic chain and like, do you move your knee first? Which knee do you move your hip first? And what order should those happen? And uh, we also did a lot of drilling and practice on principles that are oftentimes overlooked in golf. And I do, I do not golf. I don't know how to golf. This was, this was ground zero and up. So, so like, so like before this, if you went to a go- an 18 hole golf course, what would you shoot? I wouldn't even know what number to give you. <laughs> like quite <laughs> honestly, I mean, I have, I had never played on an 18 hole golf course ever. Are you allowed to say how you did by the end? Can you say the score, what you, what you scored by the, what you shot by the end? I, I'm not gonna, I'm not, we did not do like an 18 hole course. There were other goals, okay. but I'll, I'll leave that one for the folks to see. That was, that was one where, we had a we had a miracle of sorts, which was which was <laughs> pretty amazing. Uh, but I'll, I'll let people check that one out. Now, did from the beginning of the series to the end, did you find yourself getting better at the process of learning? Kind of like the meta aspects of it. Definitely, absolutely. Uh, it, and is it sort of like the difference between learning like a fourth language from learning a third language? You know, if, if you learn ten languages, I'm sure the tenth is easier than the ninth. Yeah, it's it's very similar. And uh, also, I learned a lot about managing the process, right? I mean, this is a team I hadn't worked with before, with a schedule I hadn't been on before. And so I started to figure out like, okay, uh, how do at what point should I interrupt training? Or should I ask for a half a day of training without any cameras so that it's uninterrupted? Um, because really, I mean, a day of filming meant I maybe got three to four hours of practice. I mean, it was very insanely compressed. So when people, when I say doing something in a week for many of these skills, I only had maybe 12 hours of total practice. It was really, really stressful. But, um, I did learn for instance, that given the compressed time frame, at the end of the second day of practice that night, I would have like a physical, a complete physical sense of, of overwhelm and basically a, a mini nervous breakdown. Like it was very, predi- it, would, it was very predictable. Like, because you were afraid you, you were going to fail at the goal. 
I was afraid I was going to fail, but it was also just an information overload point where I was hitting my, my, my biology, I mean, my neurophysiology. Maybe it was a depletion of neurotransmitters. I don't know the exact cause mechanically, but I was reaching a point where very predictably at the end of the second day at night, I would have the equivalent of a complete system shutdown. And that would require uh, me to prioritize sleep, for instance, more on the second night than on some of the subsequent nights because I needed that period of adaptation. And I could take things like supplements like Cooperzine A to increase REM sleep to help with the skill consolidation and stuff like that. Wait, what, but, what's that supplement? I don't think I know it. Uh, Hooperzine A, uh, obviously it's very powerful. So I'm not a doctor. Don't play one on the internet. So talk to your medical professional. But Hooperzine A is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. It inhibits the breakdown of acetylcholine. And in the lucid dreaming community, uh, which has been verified in sleep labs and so on, it's the, the ability of becoming conscious that you're dreaming when you dream, which has really fascinating implications for skill acquisition. But you can induce lucidity with greater frequency if you use Cooperzine A, it would appear. And for me, since I'm using sleep and REM sleep, which some people speculate or theorize is involved with, with memory consolidation and skill acquisition, I wanted to use Cooperzine A as sort of an unfair advantage to in increase the rate at which I would absorb these new skills. Um, but that would be much more – I didn't use it for the entire time of filming because I, I go, I cycle on and off of it. I think it's a very powerful pharmaceutical. Uh, but these are the types of things that I figured out given the constraints and the length of the show. Uh, on which day, for instance, should I increase my protein intake because I need to handle muscular repair but might not have opportunities to do so otherwise. So I started having the production crew – help get me isopure whey protein drinks so that I could take those like every three to four hours if I was doing something very, very intense like the Brazilian jiu-jitsu or the parkour or something like that because I realized if I waited until after filming to consume protein, it was too late. I, I already had a lot of microtrauma and I would be incredibly sore the next day. So I started traveling with you know an ultrasound unit and electrical stimulation unit and so on. And I should also say that a lot of the extra footage I was able to get a hold of and what that means is instead of having just 22 minutes, I have hours of bonus footage, including extended interviews with, say, the golf instructor, uh, extended demos, and all sorts of, of amazing footage that we just couldn't include because of uh, space constraints. So that stuff is all going to be at uh, 4hourworkweek.com forward slash TV, just all spelled out, F-O-U-R. So, so it seems like, like I know from – let's take a, a basic example like, like chess – so yeah. do, they've, they've done all sorts of studies on what makes the difference between a chess amateur, a chess master, and a chess grandmaster. And the main thing is a, a chess master and a grandmaster is able to do a lot of pattern recognition. So, for instance, um, you know, a castled king is like a, is considered a chunk of knowledge. And so rather than like an amateur who's studying where every piece is on the board, a master might be familiar with what to do in 10, with 10,000, knowledge of 10,000 chunks. And a grandmaster might have knowledge of 100,000 kind of chunks of knowledge. And do you find that it works the same way in all these other fields? Absolutely, 100%. And uh, I do think, Cause, however... Because I noticed you were doing that on the first episode, the, the drumming. It was like you were extremely quickly trying to chunk 
the basic elements of drumming as opposed to just hitting the, the drums, for instance. Right. Instead of playing notes, identifying how to break it down to the pre-chorus, the chorus, so that you have these sort of discrete containers that are more manageable than a thousand discrete pieces. And uh, absolutely, you see that in the rally racing. It would be, you know, where are you looking? How are you positioning your body? And what are the chunks in the visual field that you pay attention to as opposed to ignore? Uh, in chess, it could be exactly what you described, among other things. Uh, in fact, one of the the bonus clips, I don't, I, there might be a little bit of this in the episode, but there's an extended scene. You'll love this. <laughs> there's a bonus clip. I went to Washington Square Park where they have all the, the, the speed chess street Oh, hustlers. man. I grew up and, in Washington Square Park. We sh- I, I should have gone out there and, and yeah. watched you go, you go at it. And, uh, well, I brought a grandmaster with me who played one of the guys. <laughs> and, uh, he played without looking at the board. <laughs> it's an amazing exchange. Who, who, who did you bring with you? Can I ask? Uh, uh, Maurice. Oh, uh, Maurice Ashley. Yeah, Maurice Ashley, who is amazing. He's he's like Morpheus. He's one of the, uh, yeah. the coolest cats you could ever imagine. He's so awesome. And what's great about Maurice is that he also knows how to smack talk back. So he was not a sitting duck for taking any abuse. And so he's just like slowly smashing this guy. Actually, not so slowly, very quickly. And the guy's trying to shit talk to throw him off. And he's like, oh, well, don't get so funky now. And he's like watching him. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's awesome. It's such a cool exchange. But the chunking into these discrete pieces is very accurate. With languages, same story, right? And that's why there are examples online. If you're a native English speaker, for instance, you know, can you read this jumbled text? I don't even know if you would find it if you Google that. But there are examples of like, you know, can you read this sentence? And the letters are all kind of out of order in each word, or they're upside down. But your brain decodes the words so that you can read the sentences because your eyes are so accustomed to the morphology of certain words, like the D with the uptick, like the upstroke on the D, that it can decipher what the page is trying to say, even though everything is written incorrectly. It's so fascinating. But here, and, here's, here's the problem a little bit, though. So, like, let's take chess as an example. It could take two or three years of solid practice for, uh, or more than that, depending on talent levels and other things and, and who your, your instructor is. Uh, uh, it could take years to, to learn those 10,000 chunks to play at a master level. And yet, like, let's take drumming. You're playing in front of an audience of thousands in a week. Well, the, I'd say two things to that. The first is there are definitely skills that allow you to fake it sooner than others, obviously. Uh, you can fake playing the drums a lot sooner than you can fake playing the violin, for instance. Uh, and uh, that's absolutely the case. Uh, doesn't mean that drumming isn't difficult, but on a level of complexity, there are certain things you can fake sooner than others or to the, to the untrained eye or ear, things that you can, things that you can do with certain skills. I would, I would say, though, with, with uh, chess, I would absolutely maintain that what I said in The 4-Hour Chef, which is within six months, you could get to top 5% in the general population uh, if that became basically your full-time priority. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Allergic to the 10,000-hour roll. Uh, so uh, I do think that chess is a very particular example. I think chess is perhaps the hardest of the skills that I participated in to get into the top 5% in, in the world who are not treating it like a master or grandmaster track. Um, for a lot of reasons, but, um, I think that, that chess is, you can get very good at chess 
and beat almost every civilian you play with in six months or less, no doubt in my mind whatsoever. Uh, I, I really believe that. And, I, I agree with that. I, yeah, I think yeah. I think it's probably six months for that, and then but and then it's a whole. It, but that's probably true for poker as well. Oh, it's true for all of them, and I think that I think my job is to there's uh, you know something called a sigmoid curve um, that applies to a lot of natural systems, options trading, and also learning. Where you basically have, you know, imagine an S where you grab the two ends of the S and stretch it out horizontally so it looks kind of like a step. Uh, that is what learning generally looks like, where you have very slow gains, very slow gains, next to nothing, next to nothing. Then you have this like Cambrian explosion of skill development where all of a sudden you go from not being able to communicate with anyone in Spanish to, oh my God, I just held like a 30 second conversation, massive breakthrough, or you win your first game of poker, whatever it is. And then you very quickly flatten out again and you have this point of diminishing returns. So my job is to – there are people like Josh Waitzkin, for instance. We talk about this in the show. It's a really fun juxtaposition. His job is to get people from like 99 to 99.999. My job is to get people from zero to top 5% in the world in six months or less. And I think that I can do that. I'm good at it. And I've spent – if, if people ask me like, oh, well, what are you really good at? Because you're just a jack of all trades. You're a dilettante who's just dabbling in all these things. I'm like, no, 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 you're missing the meta here. The skill that I'm refining is meta learning. It's the toolkit. It's like you can use a saw or a hammer or a screwdriver to build all sorts of things, anything. And I'm trying to refine those tools that other people can use, whether they want to learn Spanish, Japanese, how to cook, Japanese horseback archery, rally racing, poker, you know, Excel spreadsheets doesn't matter, right? So, um, so let's take language as an example, because uh, so like see, episode three in this in the season is you, you um, are learning basically Tagalog, the Filipino language, uh, in in the period of a week. Uh, so what? How, how do you get? How did you get yourself? Uh, and, and let's talk about it from a meta level rather than the specifics of the language. What what, what were you thinking going into that? Like how you were going to do it? So going into it, I, I needed to first know thy opponent. I really needed someone who could help me deconstruct the language, help me know what is most difficult for native English speakers, what is easiest for native English speakers, uh, if there are ways I can cheat. So for instance, if there's something very difficult about it, is there an alternative construction that I can use which will still be proper Tagalog that will not make my head explode because I don't have time for that head exploding component, right? If I only have, in this case, it was like three or four days. It was insane. Uh, That's so, incredible. I, yeah. I can't believe it. Oh my God. I, Were you scared? I, I was terrified. I was terrified for all of these. And, uh, and I've done a lot of crazy things. I've done a lot of very aggressive things in my life, but I'm still human. I'm very, I, I don't want to be publicly humiliated, especially on, on television. <laughs> would, so, would you have been publicly humiliated? Like, would they have aired it if you failed? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They would have aired it. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, and I don't win in all these episodes. I, I should make that clear. Or I, I make I make I have breakthroughs in every episode, but some of them end catastrophically. Uh, so oh not God. all of them. Yeah. And Can I you tell me one episode which ends catastrophically. Parkour. Um, that was that was bad. I, I'm still. This is a year and a half later. I'm still contending with injuries that I had from that episode. Oh my um, god! Yeah, really, really, uh, some some gnarly, gnarly long term joint. Did you injuries. cry on the show in pain? Uh, I didn't cry. I definitely 
wince and close my eye and drop to a knee and so on. Uh, and I spent a lot of time on a PT table. So you have footage of me getting treated by doctors as well. <laughs> oh my God. We can, uh, it's like the $6 yep. million dollar man now has to, that, that team has to come in. Oh, I know. Rebuild you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was, I was, uh, it was a process of breaking myself down and then rebuilding myself over the weekend for the next, the next episode. <laughs> so, okay. So, uh, so, te- so, so the yeah, Filipino yeah, language, so language so you're, break, you're, you're understanding the opponent and breaking it down in the same way you would approach, say, tennis. Um, and uh, the, the, the next step would be selecting the highest frequency vocabulary and grammatical construction so that I am getting sort of 80% of what I need from 20% of the content, right? What so you is, said, that, is that a memory thing? That is a memory thing. So I worked with some incredible people like Ed Cook who – trained uh, a writer named uh, Josh Four, who wrote Moonwalking with Einstein to right. become the national memory champion in the United States in one year. So I had Ed Cook helping me with some of the techniques. I, of course, have a lot in my own back pocket just after, after years of doing this. And uh, so you're using mnemonic devices, memory, memory tools and devices to memorize, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of words uh, in one or two days. It's very, it's very achievable, but very intense. Uh, and then uh, practicing in live environments as much as possible. So in LA, I stayed with a family that spoke Tagalog. Uh, that was, that was a key component. And then really trying to predict like, okay, what are the questions they are most likely to ask me in an interview? Right. And this is, this is something you can do anytime you learn a language. They're going to be asking you questions like, why did you choose to learn X? Where are you from? Do you have any brothers or sisters? You know, where did you grow up? So I had to make sure that I wrote, I wrote out my biography, right? Like here's Tim's life story. And then basically broke it down into responses to questions. And I was like, all right, I need to learn at a very minimum as a starting point, all of this. And um, then stalling tactics, right? So what are the techniques that you can use in Tagalog that are like, oh, that's a good question. Well, I'm really glad you asked that. You know, give me a moment to think about that. I want to give you a good answer. If I'm having trouble recalling a certain phrase or word, right? How, how do I buy time so that I have 10 seconds to try to process? Uh, these are all approaches that you can use in other skills. So you can buy time in many different ways. You can find coping mechanisms. And, uh, but the most, perhaps the most important thing to do with all these skills is look for un- unorthodox teachers and practitioners who are good at it, who shouldn't be good at it. So someone who has very little training, who's really good at it, so, or oh, sorry, so let me just say one more thing. Or for instance, a if you're trying to learn how to swim, like study amputees. How do how do people without legs swim? Uh, and that will teach you more about biomechanics than all of the so-called best practices and traditional swimming manuals combined. Uh, and uh, you know, if you're looking at ultra endurance running or running marathons, find someone who's really really big who can do it and has good time because they're compensating for sort of bad God-given build and genetics uh, for this particular sport with technique. And you can't copy attributes, right? Like Michael Phelps' hands and feet size. You're not going to get that just by taking growth hormone or something. So you have to make up for it with technique. So, so okay. So that's very interesting. So let's take something like basketball, okay? So uh, uh, neither you or I are six foot eight or anything like that. So how would you and, – and, and basketball is not in your series at all – if, if you were told today, okay, Tim, you've got five days to become a basketball champ uh, or at least, you know, compete with the Knicks a little bit, uh, what, what would you start doing? 
Uh, I would, well, the next is a tall order, but I would say I would focus on, I would do a, an, an assessment, like almost like a business. So I would do a SWOT assessment, right? I would have sort of the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. What are the things that could go right? What are the things that could go wrong? Given that my vertical leap is X and this, this, and this, this profile, what would I have to focus on to even be a team member? And ultimately, it would probably come down to passing and perhaps long-distance shots. And uh, as a side note, I, I did actually tackle this in The 4-Hour Chef because I had always uh, viewed basketball as a huge embarrassment and failure of mine. It was something I was very embarrassed about because I was a wrestler. Wrestlers are cavemen. We can't dribble and do layups. And I was ridiculed by a PE coach back in like junior high when I tried to try out for the JV basketball team. So I, I just shelved it. And I had this, these very, very bad uh, sort of negative uh, self-image problems related to it. Um, ultimately, you can break it down and I would focus on shooting. I would focus on shooting and passing most likely and how I can compensate for my weaknesses. So I, I think that uh, – and there's a very interesting piece I think that Malcolm Gladwell wrote in The New Yorker about – uh, non-obvious basketball strategy that was used by some, I think, entrepreneur, uh, Indian fellow who coached his daughter's basketball team. He had never played basketball before, and I think he took them to an undefeated season. Uh, so there, there's there's team-level strategy and then there's personal strategy, and both would have to interplay so that I would not embarrass myself and everyone else on the, on the court. But that's how, I would, that's how I would think about it. Would you look for, like... Um... Like the Harlem Globetrotters has some, you know, smaller players. Would you look for their techniques of what they were doing? Absolutely. Yeah, I would. I would look for the shortest guys in the game. I would look for the oldest guys in the game. Um, ideally, someone who matched my bio, you know, my sort of, uh, uh, you know, phylogenomics or whatever. I mean, I try to find a white guy, right? Who is, uh, if I could, it might, you know, might not be able to, but I try to find someone who matched me attribute wise. Uh, as closely as possible to model. If I couldn't do that, though, I'd still be looking for outliers, people who are older, people who are slower, people who are uh, shorter, et cetera, because I would be in that bucket. And then I would I try to identify who their mentors and coaches were because if I talk to their NBA coach, he's not going to be nearly as helpful necessarily to me given my skill level than uh, their high school coach, right, who was dealing with teams with far lower – skill sets and less refined uh, technique and, and less experience. So I would, I would certainly not shy away from going to a high school coach who had dealt with shorter people who went on to become superstars. Absolutely. So, so, okay. So now what happened? They canceled the show. Obviously you wanted to buy the rights because you wanted to, to share this with the world. How did you go about getting the, the rights? I, I've never actually heard of anybody getting the rights to their show back. Uh, yeah, it's, it took a lot of blood, sweat and tears and money. Uh, Did they say uh, no at first? Uh, they, they didn't say no, uh, so much as we don't want to do a deal with Tim Ferriss, but they were considering many different options for the show. And, uh, it, the reason it took so long is partially because they were shutting down the entire division. So they were more occupied with the priority of, letting people go, negotiating severance packages, and providing a soft landing for all of that than uh, making deals for divesting themselves of the show, which was probably written off by that point anyway. So it wasn't like they had a P&L obligation to do a deal. Uh, the way I got it ultimately was by trying to understand the, in the incentives of everyone involved 
And then also, uh, ultimately, working with a lawyer who had done a lot of deals with Turner Broadcasting so that he was he was familiar with what they could do, couldn't do, and so on. You basically uh, use your technique of learning on learning how to buy the rights of your show. I, yeah, exactly. It was, it was exactly that. And I just read a quote uh, from Thomas Edison yesterday that I thought was just so perfect. It should be my life mantra, which is when you think you've examined – or no, I said when – when when you've examined all of the possible options, just remember, colon, you haven't. <laughs> no, That's like, great. Man, isn't that the truth? Well, so so you're releasing all the episodes today, April 28th, fourhourworkweek.com slash TV. I think the valuable – obviously, I'm sure you edited this great. All the storytelling is great. But for me, the valuable thing is to kind of understand how you meta-learned, how you kind of learn to learn because I think that's where – education needs to go. So I, I actually think this is an incredibly valuable series for not only myself, but I'm, my children I'm going to have. I'm going to force them to watch it. <laughs> Even though you're a guy and they only watch stuff with girls in it right now, but I'm going to, I'm going to force them to watch it. Well, I will tell you that uh, some of the folks in, involved with the show, uh, I had dinner with one of them, and they asked their two daughters if they wanted to watch the show and they were totally hooked. And these are you know, like 10 and 12 years old. So I think Excellent. there's something I think there's something there, man. I hope so. <laughs> okay, well, good luck. I can't wait to I can't wait to see these. All right. Thanks so much, James. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Tim. Bye. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansbury Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.